this is a quote from a poem, very famous poet. You wander from room to room, hunting for the diamond necklace that is already around your neck. To search for what we already have, for us individually, that could be a myriad of things, but for us culturally or for us socially, I believe ultimately that all comes down to one thing, and that is love. I believe love is a diamond necklace that we wander from room to room looking for. And if you don't believe me, psychology today will prove you wrong. But they say this, it says, if, you need, um, if the need to be loved is hardwired and universal and also a powerful determinant of happiness, how come many of us aren't aware of it, that we're wearing the necklace? Collective church, are you aware of it? Or how about this, what makes us aware of it? You see, today, Collective, I want to make the argument that the diamond necklace that we all want and already have is most proven, not in affirmation, not in tolerance versus intolerance, but in pain. It's most proven in pain. And I bet this is why so many of us don't realize that we're wearing the necklace or wandering from room to room seeking to replace diamonds with synthetics is because pain and suffering and affliction we run from. But not today. Hebrews chapter 12, a chapter highly controversial, debated over, and it, it oddly and it wonderfully seeks to comfort you and I with words like discipline, with words like chastisement, and with words like pain. If you remember, the problem with the original audience was that they were looking at their painful circumstance without looking to God. Or if some of them were looking at God, they were actually just more probably caught up in the fact that they think this God has a distaste for them. How many of us today are doing that same thing? No, the God that you're talking about, he has a distaste for me. So this unknown, mysterious, eccentric author of the book of Hebrews, someone we have affectionately called the stranger. If you need a visual of him, we've always said, think about Jack Nicholson. So that's probably what he was like. A little bit of Jack Nicholson, a little bit of Cormac McCarthy, some Lorenzo Smith in there, like all of that kind of in a ball of wax. But he knows his church is giving a greater consideration to the problem, but not to its purpose. You're focusing far too much on the problem, he's saying. And friends, church, that is a steel bear trap. So the pastor of this Hebrew church asks a very direct question to them, and which is asked to us right now, and here it is, verse 5. He says, have you forgotten? That means they once knew. Have you actually forgotten? So what have we forgotten in this present pain? The exhortation that addresses you as sons. The danger forgetting that, that we're children to a father. Church, we can't even take another step forward until this is like vice gripped our hearts and minds. This is the heart of Hebrews chapter 12 and truly the heart of all gospel truth. The stranger is telling them as much as he's telling us, do not forget this single truth. And then he quotes from the book of Proverbs from the Old Testament, wisdom literature, which not only makes his pain slash love point, he makes his point undefeatable. He basically tells him something you cannot argue with. Read verse five again. This is what he tells him. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by it. For the Lord disciplines the one 
he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Wait, wait, wait. Did we just hear that? Discipline and love. Those two things do not go together, right? In our culture, discipline and love does not go together. That's like oil and water. That's like talent and country music, right? They don't go together. That's like Kevin Hart and the Oscars. Too soon? Too soon? Welcome to Collective. Los Angeles culture, we don't believe that that can cohabitate. This idea to Los Angeles is love and confirmation. But that's not what Hebrew chapter 12 says. It says God's love most demonstrated is love and correction. That is the diamond necklace. The necklace so many here might not realize they have, which is the love of God. Or I could just say it, God loves you. Now, I know for many here, Christians or not, that phrase or idea is old hat. That is moth-eaten. That is commonplace. Because some here could fight back with me right now saying, God loves me. Casey, you don't know what I've gone through. God loves me. Do you know my past, present, or future, current circumstances or whatever? Zero proof of God's love in my life. But then what I would say right now is, don't you see it's possible that right there, those are actually the clues. Not to our despondency, but clues to a broader, bigger, brighter, more right way to view God. Clues to ultimately the prickly truth that God is lovingly involved in our struggles as much as he is our success. Let me make this point, but before we go any further, is anybody here familiar with, well, if you are familiar with illustration or painting, there's something that you know that has to happen, that being called color blocking. Before an artist moves forward with details, he has to do, she has to do color blocking. Then and only then can you do details upon it. So I have to do some color blocking with God's discipline before we go any further, okay? So our hardships, our persecutions, our difficult circumstances, our physical discomforts, our financial pressures, and other such tribulations, God allows, and sometimes God appoints, but hear me now, God never authors the brokenness or the evil, but he allows access and introduces us to the valleys of the shadow of death for corrective, for preventative, and for educational reasons, like any good parent must do. The word discipline, apart from these four occurrences here in Hebrews, is only in two other New Testament books. So let me just say that. That proves the point that this chapter is the biblical playbook for knowing what God's discipline is like. The terrifying, haunting truth and beautiful truth that we are disciplined. And it's saying to think... Being weird? My mic? Sorry about that. It's saying to think of discipline only as retribution is far too shallow of thought. For any of us to think of discipline as only retribution is shallow. Or you could say what we need to think about right now is that when God's discipline, his wings are fully spread, it's about teaching. God's discipline is about making responsible disciples. Now listen, I have to paint this picture before we move on. This is the color blocking. Please listen to this point. We never see discipline or suffering for punitive reasons ever. Ever. 
God's discipline of you and I Christians never, 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 never involves wrath. His righteous wrath against the unjust, vile transgressions and sins was unleashed upon a willing Jesus Christ at the cross. God is not interested in dual payments ever, making Jesus pay and you. So for clarity, God has no thoughts of calamity or, 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 or evil plans or ill motives towards you or towards me. Now, if you don't like the shade or the hue of my color blocking, hopefully what we go over now helps brighten this up even more. So Collective Church, looks down at Hebrews chapter 12. What you're going to see, actually what we're going to see is five elements of God's discipline. Five elements. Sort of sounds like a BuzzFeed article, right? 19 reasons dogs are better than humans. We're going to see five elements of God's discipline. The author gives us a pentagon of sorts. I even made a screen. Can we show the screen? Look at it. Look what I did. I made this for you all. I'm going to lay it out there, but it's a, it's a way to know and accept God's discipline. Because remember, this is, the, this is the playbook of discipline. One cannot be subtracted without it holding its shape. And guess what? All of my points, guess what? They're all peace. Because it's not a sermon until it's a cheesy alliteration. You're welcome, world. Verse 6. We're going to go through these five for anybody who cares, which is hopefully all of you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons or daughters for what son or daughter is there whom his father does not discipline. If you know anything about the Bible or the overarching scriptural narrative, then you know what we just read is nothing short of revolutionary. The entire Old Testament views God, the original audience would have known this well, as God, it hastens us to bow, and he's this majestic, powerful creator and king. But then come the New Testament, something radical happens. God still remains holy and majestic, but Jesus adds an electric emphasis on God. That being, oh yes, 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 he's creator and king, but I want you to start thinking of him as your dad. Start thinking of him as your dad. And it was Jesus who says, call him Abba Father. It's Jesus who says, pray in his name and that is Father. It is Jesus who says, who brings us not as criminals, but as children. Showing us that God the Father is now God our Father. It is Jesus who introduces this thought. Thus showing us that God is personally, emotionally, and even sacrificially involved in our lives. Author J.R. Packer observes when he says, to those who are Christ, the holy God is a loving God. They belong to his family. They may approach him without fear and always be sure of his fatherly concern and care. This is the heart of the New Testament message. So hear me. He wants to and is parenting you. That is the first P on the Pentagon. I'm going to accidentally say pentagram and it's going to freak me out. Pentagon. If I say pentagram and I just plow through it, we're not that type of church. Bear with me. He wants to parent you. He wants to parent me. Now this is, again, this is Los Angeles. This is hard for many, the majority of us, to compute. Actually, I'll just speak for myself. Many of you know, I mean, there's been some heartache in my life, but there has been years of hardship and pain where I've buried my weepy eyes in my hands and I've had wiser counsel telling me, Casey, do you not realize during all this pain and hardship that you are being parented? 
and parented rightly. To be parented is to release our terms. To be parented is to release our limited wisdom. To be parented is to be loved with a stern and caring love. So as many of you know, I've had five horrid, abusive, vile men, stepfathers come in and out of my life. But little did I realize as I was a kid that I wanted more than anything was just to be fathered or parented, which meant I want somebody to love me enough to step in. If you know anything about child rearing, kids want to be disciplined. Rambunctious kids want their parents to step in. It's the truth. Kids want order and structure. That is an incredible diamond necklace. And now that I've seriously followed Jesus for 21 years, I've come to know new ways that God the Father loves me in a way that I can never, on my best day, love my own children. Verse 8. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So the second point on the Pentagon is proof. I wouldn't say this if it were not written in Hebrew, so here it goes. To go through a pain-free life devoid of discipline is, is, is it's spiritual. It's to be a spiritual orphan. A life free of hardship does not signal the good life. It signals that you are probably not a child of God. And allow me for just a moment to make this point. If you choose to reject the good news of Jesus Christ, then we are rejecting God as a parent. And to reject his fatherhood and our identity as children is to reject the atonement for our trespasses. Essentially, what you're saying is, Jesus, I don't want your interception. I'll take the hit. I'll take the punitive hit. I'll take the wrath hit. I want you out of the way, Jesus. So then... God's absence of activity in our lives speaks more about distance and disapproval more than any of his presence possibly could. Okay, this verse 9 really grounds this point home. Look at verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we represented or respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? He's basically comparing dads. He's saying, you know what it's like to have earthly parents saying, this is not foreign thought. You know what this is like. Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Friends, this is discipline's purpose. Now I know holiness has lost its edge in our day. Most of us chalking that up, uh, holiness to conservative old line moral actions. If, for front, or if any of us here are new to the church or new to Christianity or even been around it for a while, we hate the term or you hate the term holiness. It is far too conservative, far too old line. It gets labeled just as purely morality. What happened, right? For people who are trying to seriously follow Jesus and we hear about holiness, we have to stop and go, what happened? How did living on his terms, delighting in him, obeying in him and honoring him get labeled just purely as morality or out of date? Those aren't signs of behavior, but of belonging, wanting to honor and live for him. That's not signs of behavior, but belonging. Holiness is a plural reality. What that means is we know who we are and we live like it. We know who we are and we live like it. Which then changes our timid approach to discipline from, if we're new to Christianity, why God? 
As we mature in Christianity, we then go to how God, but as we continue to mature and mature and mature in following Jesus, we will eventually get to the point where we say, please, God, do this. Not in a masochistic, disgusting, weird type of way, but for fatherly, sanctifying, corrective love. The psalmist gets at it in verse 71 of chapter 119. He says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. That, that dude gets it. Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It will be painful, God's discipline. It must be painful. Okay? God's love is that. His chastisement, although painful, yes, it is profitable. Most true change happens in challenges. But this is the point that it's probably good as any to stop and slow down because my big fear is to be perceived as trying to give a Pentagon-shaped prescription for all forms of suffering or painfulness. Because inevitably, somebody here is going to ask and should ask, whoa, 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 whoa. That pain of that child's brain tumor? Whoa, whoa, whoa. The pain of that family that is wrestling with their father's suicide? Whoa, whoa, what? That pain of a miscarriage? And you're going to tell me and just label that as profitable? That I'm supposed to learn some life lesson from a loss of a child? One French philosopher, she calls these forms of suffering a horror which submerges the soul. So, no, I'm not saying that. Apart from God, it's all singular tragedy. But I would say this. Faith seeks opportunity to discover that dimension of purpose and even growth that the sufferer otherwise would never have access to. Case in point, verse 11, goes on to make the last point of the Pentagon, where it says, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, right living to those who have been trained by it. Now, to be honest with the playbook that this is of God's discipline, as much as I wish I could just tell you why it's your turn, why it's happening now, or how long it'll last, I can't. And more I could tell you, any more than I could tell you why that particular fruit was on that vine and grew and blossomed at that time. The only thing we must expect to employ ourselves with all of God's discipline is this, patience, an enduring patience. I like how the, another New Testament book lays the groundwork. He helps fill this in. He says in 1 Peter, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what am I saying? Church, there is no such thing, and if anybody tells you there is, there is no such thing as snake oil spirituality. There is no such thing as drive-through community. There is no such thing as microwavable maturity. Ever. If you're here for the first time and you've been wondering, maybe this church or maybe this Jesus might provide some sort of like Amazon Prime deliverables of solutions and faith, you will be so 
frustrated with God and his methods then, his timing and his ways. So let me wrap all this up then. All of that concluding with this. Look at verse 12. All of those five points concluding with this. That was a lot to take in. Bear with me. Verse 12, therefore, we have to ask what it is there for. This is his conclusion. Therefore, 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 the author says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. It's believed that this came from Isaiah 35 where it says, strengthen the weak knees and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God. So I want to just slow our roll. Are we getting this? We just went really fast over a playbook, the five things that he's placing around God's discipline and his elephant-sized conclusion to God's discipline is, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged runners in this race if you remember last week. That's it. Don't be discouraged. Isn't that an interesting conclusion? Am I the only one kind of almost bothered by that? What an interesting conclusion. It's not don't be angry. It's not don't sin. It's not don't be an idiot. He literally says to runners in this race, lift, avoid, strengthen, at all costs avoid that discouragement. I wonder here who faces most mornings with discouragement. I wonder if there's somebody here like that. The author of Hebrews is trying to communicate that discouragement is is like exhaustion or spiritual and emotional fatigue. Is that anybody here? Just over it, close to burnout. Discouragement is his conclusion. So then there must be a stronger riptide that we have fully yet to realize with unchecked discouragement for it to be the conclusion of all of this. So the question we have to is why? Verse 12 tells us, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, runners, and make straight paths for your feet. So we're back back to that athletic imagery. So that what is lame may not be put out of a joint, but rather healed. That word lame in the ancient world, world was a word for the technical sense of dislocation. There it is. That's it. Unchecked discouragement is the pathway of getting taken out of the race. Another way you could say this, it's apostasy. Apostasy is knowing the truth, believing the truth, and yet to not care enough about it to run for it. So no, I absolutely believe in Jesus. I just don't want it. I'm gonna go that way. It's apostasy. Discouragement leads, unchecked discouragement leads to apostasy. Now apostasy's arch enemy is holiness, what we talked about earlier. These two are two dogs in the fight. Holiness is a runner racing towards a goal. Apostasy is a runner racing towards himself. Holiness is progressing down the track. Apostasy is digressing by turning around. Holiness is faith-fueled. Apostasy is fear-fueled. Holiness is affection for the end line. Apostasy is avoidance of finishing tape. So if we're discouraged today, if you are discouraged today, take this as a warning that the end game of discouragement is complete dislocation. That is terrifying. Now, all of that seems pretty basic. Some of you might even be let down going, eh, eh, holiness. 
What is the other stuff I covered? All the P, the P's I went over. Yeah, I got it. Maybe. Collective church, please listen ever so closely. For the next few minutes, I'm going to address you and for those who consider themselves a part of this community. Meaning if somebody says, what church are you a part of? And you say collective church, I'm talking to you. If you're a visitor, take this to your own church. If you're Christian and you're unchurched, change that. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, I would say, listen to what we have to say because what's happening here is is it's explaining for the next few moments what a church hopes to be and where we failed at for those here who don't follow Jesus. So then, in this closing of this little portion, the author disjoints us all by expressing and giving mandatory, mandatory, mandatory ways of life if we desire to run this race. Think of this very small list he does as, as, as a warning. Think of them as warnings. Because last week we talked about runners. What he's about to do now is saying, you see all the potholes in your track that you're running on? Fill them. Now he's talking about where you're running. You see all the stuff, all the debris and trash on your track? Clean it up. Clean it up. So these are external actions which alter our interior being. If the love of the Father most proven and disciplined happens, it's actualized in our life. And he goes this way, it's actualized in our life. You ready for this? This is what he says. <laughs> It'll be known if we, how we handle peace. Oh, okay. How we handle grace giving. Yeah, that makes sense. How we handle bitterness. Wow, okay. And how we handle sex. What? That's the small list he gives. If you actually believe the Father's discipline is good for you, it'll be changed in peace, grace-giving, bitterness, and sex. You know the church then right there in that moment must have been like, (laughs) this is the part we've been waiting for. If you read the verses beforehand, you're like, what is he talking about? Why this? This is oddly placed. So now that I have everybody's attention, look at verse 14. We're gonna build to it. I made sure it was last. It says, strive, not achieve. Strive. Strive for peace with everyone. There's a great moment in Lord of the Rings. There's a lot of great moments in Lord of the Rings. There's a great moment in the Lord of the Rings where the elves and the dwarves are, are, are coming together to oppose the Dark Lord, but they immediately start to gripe and call down plagues upon one another. And then one of the wives' elves comes out and says, indeed, and nothing is the power of the dark Lord more closely shown than in the estrangement that divides all those who still oppose him? Meaning, one of the devil's greatest victories is when there is an estrangement collective church in this community. Our conflicts, our disunities, fly against everything that the gospel has revealed itself to be. Everything. Are we striving for peace or are we purposely sitting on opposite ends of the room? I love that we are a small community and I hope we always stay this way. But I will say it makes it a lot harder to avoid peacemaking or striving. And if we can't have peace amongst ourselves, Christians, how in the world do we expect to have peace out there? And let me tell you, there are people who are disjointed in our community today in this moment and That is causing a disjoint in our community and it is causing a disjoint between you and the Lord. To not have peace amongst one another is to not have peace with God. 
It's in the Bible. And we're not striving to pursue that peace with that enemy, with that awkward situation, with that person who grinds our gears. Guess what we fail to do? Look at verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. This is imagery that they want us to see right here that he's trying to lay out is us helping another person, another thirsty person by opening their hands as somebody, as the Lord is pouring out a pitcher of water. That's what all of this obtaining grace, helping others to do so, is helping the person receive that water, this thirsty person, this starving person receive it. That is what our discipleship groups aim to do to call out lies, to re-angle glory, to help one another clean up their tracks for a straighter, cleaner, smoother run. Are we striving for this? Because a failing peace and failing to help, you know, re-help, orient others is not present. It's more than likely because of verse 15. Read with me all the way. It says, a root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many have become defiled. These are communal sins. Bitterness, though, is unique, is it not? Bitterness is unique because it is, it's a seed planted by a bad circumstance. And once that bad circumstance moves on, the seed still grows. That's bitterness. It's still present. It still grows. Who here is bitter today? It's killing you. Now, I'm working through these quickly and we're gonna conclude them at the end, but I wanna get to the oddest of the bunch, what everybody's been waiting for. The last potential pothole it mentions is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Why in the world again would he write this here in this moment? Why not lists of, you know, people who are addicted to certain things or struggling with alcoholism or so on and so forth, but he immediately goes to sexuality. So yes, it's here because it's about intimacy and nearness and holiness. Yes, of course. But it's also here because it's one of the most critical ways that we operate and relate. In its original language, porneia, where we get our word pornography or porn, which refers to, all that means is it's any form of sex outside of God's amazing design. Any form of sex out of God's design is porneia. Now, that comes, that idea comes with many, many, many lies that have been conjured up, constructed around this. Those many lies can defile our community. Told you, I'm talking to us. Lies like, we're married in God's eyes, so we can have all the sex we want. What? I don't even know what that means. Lie. Times have changed culturally. This biblical text no longer applies to me. Lie. Or it's not wrong or sin if we love that person and we're loyal just to them. Wrong. Or sex is a private affair and it's no one's business but my own. Wrong. Those are all lies. None of those are true. We must come to terms that how we wrongfully use sex has significant communal and spiritual ramifications. You need my sexual purity and my sexual devotion to my wife as much as I need your sexual purity and your sexual devotion to your spouse. We need it. Do you believe that? Those lies are a form of a romanticist worldview. Meaning 
That worldview makes sex purely an expression of sincere love. That's why those same people who make those lies or claim them also say, that's why sex with a prostitute's okay. Didn't love him. Didn't love her. Those bindings of that worldview are mere emotion and a weak basis for sexual ethics and a sexual theology. In a biblical worldview, the purpose of sex is not, is not, is not personal self-expression or the pursuit of happiness. A biblical worldview of sex is all about self-donation, self-giving. Now hear me. Hear me, hear me, hear me. Sex is, is a form of imitation of God giving through Christ. So sex then is a witness to gospel truth. Because of the Bible beautifully upholds a public, excuse me, a public and legal covenantal binding. What does that mean, Casey? That means showcasing that it that the Bible's parameters of sex is complete giving. Complete giving. Not just the emotional love giving. And any form of sex without complete giving of one self is selfish. So then the Bible views sex not primarily as self-fulfillment. Sorry, Los Angeles. But as a way to know Christ and even model Christ's complete giving of himself. This, this is why it's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 12. This entire chapter is asking the question, do you know what you have been given? Do you know what you have Do you see the diamond necklace around your neck or do you take it for granted? In the Old Testament, there's a story of a man named Esau who did something irrevocable. What's Hebrews 12, 16 say? That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. These are massive important rights, these beautiful spiritual responsibilities, all traded for a single meal bowl of soup for a bowl of soup Esau is a man so earthbound he would sell eternal properties for anything that he could eat eat touch suck digest lick taste and feel that's how earthbound he was gold for mud steel for dust heavenly for earthly you could also say he traded a diamond necklace so allow me to ask today, is somebody here troubled as they possibly follow the path of Esau? Trading God's promises and affection for with little, just treating them with little consequences or care. Trading God's gospel for more immediate, gratifying needs of differing soups, differing diamond necklaces, worldly appetites of power and blissful ignorance and vocational pursuit. Hebrews chapter 12 invites you if that is you, troubled like Esau, invite you to reconsider. Reconsider. Not your sex life, not your wallets, not your relationship. Hebrews chapter 12, verse three. Reconsider. Okay, what are we supposed to reconsider? Verse three, consider him. Who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that they may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the only, only way to truly know the Father's love is by considering Jesus. Do we see why he is so freaked out that this Jewish community might give up? Consider Jesus. 
Complete self-donation, complete self-giving of God through Christ to the point of death. Wow. Once we seek to understand the gospel in greater ways, the gospel and its love, get this, we then finally come to terms of our soul's cost and value and worth. We want to know the price of our soul. God paid it. We know the exact cost of our soul. And it cost his son. But once we start to understand the cost of our soul, then what we need to do, what it's backing us to do from Hebrews chapter 12, is then to look from the vantage point of the cross and look to others. If that's the cost of my soul, that's also the cost of Theo's soul. That's the cost of Andy's soul. And all of a sudden, when we have that unbelievable realization, guess what? Striving for peace, helping others to obtain grace, pulling out bitter roots, and grandstanding the beauty and the complete giving of gospel truth with sexual intimacy, they stand so much more supreme. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.